but it's, uh, it's true, right? Like that's a weird thing to think about, that the person sitting next to you, the person that you look at in the mirror, is the image of God. If you've been around Christianity or Judaism at all, you've probably heard the phrase, humans are made in the image of God. That's why every person, every life has inherent value and worth. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in his likeness, to be made in his image? Now, I've heard a lot of theories over my lifetime, a lot of different things sitting through sermons and lectures in Bible college and seminary. I've heard a lot of people debating about what it means. I bet you've heard some of these things too. What, what are some of the things you've heard that, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What's some of the explanations you've heard? Have you heard it? Maybe not. Maybe today I will finally give you the explanations you've never heard. Awesome. I've heard some different things. Like sometimes people have said, like, maybe it's our creativity because God's a creator and we can create something. You give Darby a blank, blank canvas and she will create something that I never would have thought of or imagined. Um, you know, if you sit me down at a instrument, I can't write music, but I know that there's people who can. Like maybe it's our creativity. Other people have said, well, you know, we're this unique mixture of body and soul. We're heaven and earth in this unique combination. Um, maybe that's part of it because God's a triune being. I've heard lots of different things, but today we're going to talk about what I think it means, and hopefully it'll help you in your life this week. Now, before we dig into what it means to be in the image of God and talk about what that means for our everyday life, we need to look back because we are kind of halfway through a series in Genesis 1 through 3. And for some of you, you're just jumping in now or maybe online, and so you haven't heard the messages that came before. So we have to remember that Genesis was written for us because it's part of the Bible, um, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to Israelites leaving 400 years of Egyptian slavery, and the questions that they were asking, the things that they were wondering about, aren't the questions that we're necessarily asking. So we need to be careful when we come to the text that we don't bring our modern questions to a text that's not trying to answer modern questions. They were coming from a different place than we are. So let's hop into where we are today and talk about some of these things. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky. They will rule the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God created them, male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Roll the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed, these will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. So now, before we get into the part that I really want to talk about, and that you're curious about, the image of God, right? I want to pull out a couple of other things from this passage that I think are interesting, curious, that are worth stopping on and talking about. First in verse 26, did you catch what God said? Then God said, let us make man in our image. Who in the world is God talking to here? Right? Scholars debate this. Who is this us that God is talking about 
Christian scholars, of course, think this is a nod to the Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are talking with each other. And they're like, we live in this community of love. Let's create more beings to enjoy this community with us. Jewish scholars, of course, reject the idea of the Trinity of God. Um, they say that's polyistic thinking. And so they argue that God is speaking to a heavenly court of angelic spirits, and God is saying, I'm going to create more beings. Regardless, whether one of those is right or the other or something completely different, God is not alone. You know what I've heard sometimes in church? It's like, well, you know, God made humans because he's so lonely. That's not God. There is no part of God where he's like, I'm missing something. I think I'll make some humans. You know, like, that was not God. He either had the community of an angelic courtroom or he had certainly the community of the sun and the spirit. He did not make people because he was lonely. He made people to join him in the work that he was doing. He made people not to fill the need of his, but to share out of the abundance that he has. God never wants to act unilaterally when he can act cooperatively. Um, if you give me enough power, I'll be like, oh good, I can do everything myself, and I usually get myself in trouble. Um, this week, I did that trying to do some home repairs on myself, and I was like, I can figure it out. There's Google. Yeah, I can figure anything out. I don't need any professional help. And of course, I uh, did some really stupid things and got myself in a bad situation, and now I need professional help, right? Um, God, though, he has all the power. He has all the wisdom and knowledge, and he'd rather work with people than work alone. Let's look next at verse 26 and 28. Um, there's some interesting words here, right? He tells humans you will roll the fish of the sea. In verse 28, he says, I want you to subdue the earth. Some of your translations might say, take dominion over the earth. How many bristle when you hear those words? Those sound like conquering words, right? That's how we usually use them. We're like, I'm gonna conquer these people. I'm gonna rule them. I'm gonna subdue them. I'm gonna have dominion. Um, that's not the tone that the original Hebrew words are trying to get across here. It's not that we're supposed to have whips and be beating the animals of the earth and like, I'm master of you, like, you serve me, fish. That's not what he's trying to get across here. Um, we bristle when the New Testament sometimes uses similar words to talk about submission, among leadership and in relationships. This idea of rule is not about dominating, but is instead about extending the flourishing abundance that God started. God's like, I started plants growing, I started animals, I started fish and birds. As humans, your job is to spread that abundance that I've already started. Your job is to keep it growing and extending. His image bearers are to guide the beauty he has put into the chaos, to help it become more beautiful and less chaotic. Just like a parent guides a child to flourishing as an adult, God wants his image bearers to guide the plants and animals and the world he created towards even more flourishing. That's what he means by rule over it. He says essentially take charge of it, help it realize its full potential. God has built the potential for beauty and good into everything in his world, and we have the responsibility to draw it out and spread it out. We are the trellis, if you want to think of it that way, for the good creation that God's created to grow and become even more fruitful and even more beautiful. Let's look next at verse 27. I want to pull out something here. We get this little poem here, and if you read the Old Testament all the time, you'll find where there's a narrative story and then there'll be a little poem. 
And the translators have helped key us in on that because if you'll see in verse 27 in your Bibles or up on the screen, uh, it actually offsets it. Um, that's just a little clue that, hey, this was a little poetic poem that's included in this passage. And many times throughout the Old Testament, you'll find a narrative story and then the writer will actually give you this little poem that kind of sums up what's happening. Um, many times if it's an important point in the grand narrative of the Bible, there'll be these little side poems. And that's what we get in verse 27. Let's look back at that. It says, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now when it says God created man, it's not talking about men and women. He's talking about mankind, humanity. He created humanity in his own image. He created humanity in the image of God. He created humanity, male and female. The image of God isn't limited to just men. It isn't limited to just women. It's not limited to a certain race of people. Whether or not you think this book has a divine touch that God was involved with human authors to bring it to us, this was a huge leap forward, even if you just think that this is an ancient piece of writing. Tons of ancient cultures had creation stories. You can read about Babylonian, um, ancient Mesopotamian creation stories, Sumerian creation stories. But what was unique about this story is most ancient creation stories say something like this. Our people, we come from the gods. Everybody else, garbage. That's why we can conquer them and take their lands and kill their people because we're God's people and they're nobody. But the Jewish scriptures actually start so differently. And this is unique in the, um, in the ancient kind of creation stories because in this it says all of humanity. All the humanity is in, in the image of God. It doesn't say, well, this is written to the Jewish people, so just the Jewish people are in the, you know, God's creation, and then everybody else is like just garbage people that we can conquer and take advantage of. It doesn't say that. Usually it would say something like, your culture is from the gods, which gives you the right to subject, subjugate all other humans. But the Jewish scriptures make it clear every person on the earth bears the image of God, all are equally worthy of life. Now this statement, verse 27 here, in a male-dominated society was a huge step forward to say women were just as much made in the image of God as men. In a tribalistic society, this was a huge step forward to say that all tribes were just as much made in God's image, not just my tribe. I also want to call attention to you something that we're going to talk about later in this series in the next few weeks. But in verse 26 and 27, You'll notice that your translation says, then God said, let us make man in our image. And in verse 27, so God created man in his image. That word right there is the Hebrew word Adam, which sounds like what? Adam. It is the word Adam. That's where we get the word Adam from. So in chapter 2, when it talks about Adam and Eve, it's the exact same word Adam that's used right here. Your translators have translated it humanity or mankind. Um, and then in chapter 2 have translated it like a proper name. You'll not find another Adam anywhere in the Bible because the word isn't a name. It's actually for humanity or mankind. Um, I think I have the Hebrew, what it looks like in Hebrew up here, pronounced Adam or Adam in English. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the next chapter because it's a real scholarly debate. Because you have some scholars who say, well, this is the word for humanity. If I told you a story and I was like, I'm going to tell you a story where the main character's name is humanity, and he's going to go and do some things that affect all of humanity, 
what's your natural tendency? Well, that sounds like a metaphor, right? So was that a real person? Um, then you have other scholars who are like, it has to be real people even if the names are metaphorical. It has to describe real events that took place because of what the New Testament uh, authors talk about. So we'll talk about that in a few weeks. If you're interested in that, let me know because I love to nerd out over these things and mention these things. You guys are like, just get to what we want to hear about. We want to hear about the hand of the God. Stop telling us little side thing that only you and a bunch of nerds care about. Um, so we'll talk more about this debate in the next few weeks. The last thing I want to call out in this passage before we get to the image of God is verse 31. Last week we looked at this creation narrative, and at the end of each day, God said it is good. At the end of uh, day six, in verse 31, God says it is very good. Now each day God has declared what he made good, but now on the sixth day, as he looks at all the good he made and how it works together, and now how he has humanity to continue in being good and expanding its good, he calls it very good. Each individual piece is good, but all the good pieces working together are very good. So let's now get to what we really want to talk about. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Verse 26 God said, let us make man in our image, our likeness. Now, this is interesting because the Hebrew word used here for image is the same word that's used for idol. If you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll come across passages where it's like, um, they made an idol to Baal. They carved a stone or wood uh, idol to be worshipped. Um, in the name of Baal, where they carved an ostra pole and they called it an image of ostra. They would call the, carve these images of these false gods, and it's the same word that's used here. It was a physical representation of a spiritual being. I have a picture here of when I was in India, um, and I know it's hard to believe this, but look how thin he is. That was before I married someone who has a pastry eater, so I was a lot thinner. Um, actually, I was back when I met him. She loves me. So I, this was 10 years ago, and this is how fat you can get in 10 years if you let yourself go. So anyways, I'm standing next to a shrine, though. In India, we would go into some shops, and you would go into a store, and they would have shelves and shelves, like a warehouse full of little uh, statues of all their gods, because they have tens of thousands of different gods in the Hindu faith. And, uh, but they had these shrines everywhere. Some were bigger than others. This was a snake shrine, the snake goddess. And um, they didn't want me to get too close. That's why I'm a little bit farther away, because they said it was offensive to like take a picture by it. But if I was at a safe distance, that was okay. So I, I took a picture from over there. But if I had gone into there, and I had smashed the statue that's in that little shrine there, what would they say? You're attacking our God, right? Like, there's, there's this image of this God, and that represents who the God is. And they would leave, you can't see it on the ground here, but they would leave trinkets and offerings and stuff outside for the God. This was a place where you could speak to the God and commune with the God. And in the Old Testament, people would build these statues to the false God. And Yahweh commanded the Israelites, Yahweh, the name of God that he revealed to Israel, he commanded the Israelites not to make images of him. Because humanity was in the image of that. It's like, you can't carve a, a picture of me. If you want to see what I look like, look at human. They're made in my image. Humanity reveals God to the world. Just think about it for a minute. You 
and I reveal God to the world. That's a, that's a heavy thought to think about. The person with no education, the person with no perceivable value to society has inherent worth because they reveal something about what God is like. The person who hurt you the most, the person you want to call an idiot, your enemy, your betrayer, the politician you don't like, that person is the image of God. That makes me sick for a minute. Every person you look at this week, every face you look at is the image of God. Every profile picture of someone who says something stupid on the internet or writes something hateful in response to something you posted is a person made in the image of God. It should make us stop and pause and think about how I talk to them, how I respond to them, how I look at them, how I think about them. In 1 John 4.20, John, one of the apostles of Jesus, says, If you say you love God, but you hate another human being, you are a liar. You cannot love the image of God that you can see. If you cannot love the image of God that you can see, you certainly do not love God himself that you cannot see. Now, since the beginning, we've had a problem, though, because God made us in his image, and then we've spent all our time remaking God in our image. We almost immediately began reforming what God is like and what he should be like. A few months ago, we did a series on who is God, what is God like, and our culture has all these ideas, and you have ideas that have come from something that someone said, or something that you learned, or something that you read, and sometimes we have misunderstandings about God. And when we misrepresent God, it leads to conflict in relationship and violence. In Genesis 1-11, through we chart this spiral as humanity is created in the image of God to draw up beauty and order in the world he's created. And almost immediately they bring chaos instead of order and beauty. And so God chooses one family, one tribe, the family of Abraham. And he said, you're going to bear my name. All of humanity bears my image, but the Jews are going to bear my name. You will represent me to the rest of humanity as humanity is supposed to represent me to all of creation. That's why that God gives commands to Israel like this. Don't take my name in vain, which you think we're like. Don't cuss. Don't say them bad words, right? That's not what it's saying. It's actually so much more than that. He's telling Israel, your responsibility now is you bear my name, and you're supposed to be showing the rest of humanity what I'm really like, because humanity has failed in their role to display what I'm like to the world. Don't take my name in vain means literally don't represent, misrepresent me to the rest of humanity. From Genesis 12 to Malachi, the rest of the Old Testament, we have Israel again and again failing to represent what Yahweh is like to the rest of humanity. They'll have a stretch where they're doing well, and then they'll turn aside. And they'll follow some other god, or they'll be destructive, or they'll, they'll betray people. And then God ends up coming to himself. John 14, 9, Jesus says, have you been with me all this time and yet you fail to realize who I am? If you've seen me, you've seen what God is really like. Jesus, once and for all, lived a human life that reflected what God was like. We couldn't do it, so God did it for us. And then he died to drink dry death itself. He invited all of humanity to come and become apprentices of his way of life, to live and love like he To reclaim our identity as image bearers of Yahweh. He promised that all who call on the name of Jesus, that all who become his disciples, would receive the power of his spirit, 
live and love like he did. Live and love like God did. Jesus created humanity to It's like a reboot of the human uh, experiment, if you will. All humans are made in the image of God. The Jews were called to bear the name of God to the rest of humanity. Now the New Testament calls Christians ambassadors of Jesus. We live and work and speak and act on behalf of Jesus as his agents for good in all avenues of life. 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Apostle Paul says we are Jesus' ambassadors. We stand in the place of God imploring you on Jesus' behalf to have your relationship with God restored. We are ambassadors. Everywhere you go, you're going as the image of God, as a student of Jesus, you're walking and working on his behalf. God has commissioned you and me to act on his behalf. Sometimes I'll hear people say, where, where is God? Why doesn't he do something? And I have to stop and say, I'm the image of God. I'm his representative right now. What am I doing? Like, I could just wait and be like, maybe God will miraculously intervene, but he's placed me here. What can I do? I stand as a physical representative of his presence to accomplish the work that he wants done. The world knows there is a God when people act like God would. People doubt there is a God when people act like God being made in the image of God means that we stand as physical representatives of the spiritual being, the creator we call Yahweh, God. And this is why a prayer isn't enough. When my neighbor is hungry, if I say, well, I hope they find some food, I pray that they find some food. Prayer empowers us to act. It doesn't excuse an action. If my neighbor is hungry, I should feed him. And I should pray that God gives me more food to share if he keeps being Everywhere you and I walk, we walk as an agent of change to bring beauty out of chaos, bring order out of disorder. God has commissioned you and me to be agents to draw out the abundance and goodness in his creation, to bring flourishing into his world, to make beauty out of brokenness, to extend the reach of Every conversation we have, every social media post we make, every action we take, we have to ask, is this fulfilling my reason for being? Am I extending the reach of good and beauty in the world? Am I carrying out the work he gave humanity to do, the work that he started and he left us in charge of? C.S. Lewis said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are all mortal. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, immortals whom we work with, whom we marry, snub, and explore. Today we're going to take communion together. And it's working a little bit differently these days because of COVID. You have in your chair a cup and a wafer. Um, in just a minute, I'm going to read a passage and we'll eat drink this together to remember the life and death and burial of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we are no longer far from God. We can enjoy being in community with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because of his death, we can live his life. Because of his life, we need not fear death. 
We invite anyone who's a follower of Jesus to partake with us. If you're like, hey, I don't want to partake today, no problem, just leave it on your chair or below your seat. In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, the Apostle Paul corrected some things. The Corinthian church was coming together to celebrate communion, and they were getting drunk, and they were like fighting over the food. And he's like, let's do this orderly, let's do this in a uh, way where you don't come out looking ridiculous. And he gave him this instruction in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. Go ahead and take your wafer. I really miss using real bread And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your body that was broken before us. Because of your death, we can live in your Thank you for drinking dry death itself, for swallowing sin so that we might be called sons, heirs. Lord, I pray that you will help us to live and love like you did. Help us everywhere we go to recognize that we are not only the image of God, but we walk as agents of change. We're part of humanity 2.0 as followers of Jesus. I pray all this in the In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new promise in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it to remember me. Go ahead and take up your cup. Jesus, thank you so much for your blood that was shed, the perfect sacrifice to pay the debt that I could not pay. Lord, I pray that we will remember the cost that you paid to free us from sin and death, and that we will live in love like you did. Verse 26, well, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim King Jesus' death until he returns. 